The Ram Dama's Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 19, Into the Wild Blue Yonder. The dawn broke clear and bright on the morning of the lunch. A steady stream of people began walking toward the transport from the hotel complex more than a half a mile away. The press was kept at bay, stationed far across the runway to prevent any harassment. And above, helicopters and weather jets zoomed overhead. It was a genuine sense of anticipation not rivaled since the early launches in the 20th century. Like everyone else, McGee and Andy were dressed in their bright blue flight suits. They walked hand in hand that morning, McGee occasionally shading the sun to get a look at the giant short-range transport. Just the size of the craft was impressive. The fact that it was going to be launched into space was even more fantastic. It would be like sending a good-sized building high above the Earth. Actually, the SRT would only be carrying about one-hundredth of its usual payload weight. Tonnage would not be a problem on this flight. Well, Sunshine, he said, checking to see if there were any other people around. Which frightens you more, going after the red metal or being zapped into space? It's not funny, McGee, she said, pointing to her stomach. It's just one big mess. I know what you mean. After all we've been through, you think we'd have a little bit more cool. I'll just be glad when this show is on the road, he said as they reached the red carpeted area. Barrett and Stoddard stood greeting all the guests personally, and Kellogg was standing off to the side. How do you do? I'm Walter Stoddard. This is Pete Barrett, and this is General Kellogg. How do you do? Smiled McGee. We both want to thank you for uh, the opportunity of flying into space. Our pleasure, said Kellogg, standing with the tag on his suit. Mr. McGee, the more educated the public, the better off we'll all be. I must say I'm a little nervous, confessed Annie. Well, very natural, Miss, uh, Miss Sinclair. Yes, uh, said Barrett, smiling. Once you get airborne, you'll be very impressed. You'll even forget you were nervous. I sure hope so, she said as they moved along. The transport loomed right over them now. Just the height was staggering. Five stories from the ground up. The sun ducked behind the craft now, and they climbed the stairway into the shadows. Flight attendants checked their papers and directed them inside the ship. The lower level was like a lobby of a hotel. There were television monitors all around and bright gold carpeting. White plastic escalators sloped upward, bringing the passengers to the next level. Absolutely astounding, said McGee as they stepped into the check-in line in front of the desk. What do you think, Annie? Should we buy one of these when we get bored? I'll settle for a tranquilizer at this point, she said, inhaling to calm her nerves. I'm sorry, everything will go off just perfectly. I've got it all set. Just trust me. We, sir, said the clerk. Oh, yes, McGee said, stepping forward. He gave them in their papers. Mr. McGee and Miss Sinclair, up the escalators all the way to the rear. Up the escalator again, you'll be on the third level. Just go to section five, he smiled. Next. Thanks, replied McGee, taking the papers. They walked across the new carpeting, gazing up at the very long window spans on either side. The hangar and the hotel were clearly visible. As they stepped onto the escalator, however, Andy bit her lower lip. Andy, come on, you have to think about something else, he said, squeezing her hand. This will be a breeze. I don't know, I just can't explain it, she said as they rose to the next level. I just have a bad feeling about this whole thing. It's just something new, a new reality. 
and totally incredible, he said as he reached the top. It will pass just like Barrett said. I hope so, I never felt like this before, McGee, she said, looking into his eyes. And you've never flown into space before either, have you? No, 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 I haven't, she replied softly. Trust me, Annie, he said. He raised his brows and smiled. She nodded as they stepped to the next section. There was a large bar in the rear, recreation and relaxation rooms adjacent to it. The passenger sections butted the main room. They moved across the green carpet to the front escalator that would take them to the upper level. McGee looked at the sign as they moved upward, sections five to 10 ahead. The metal door leading to the VIP section was behind the sign. They stepped onto the lavender colored carpet and moved toward the left. Handing their papers to the attendant, McGee marveled at the construction. It was as if they were in a building, not a ship that was taking off to outer space. The attendant brought them inside the oblong room their seats were right next to the observation windows. Couldn't ask for better seats, smiled McGee as he sat down. But he could tell Annie was still upset. How are you doing? I felt better, she said as she closed her eyes. McGee reached out and held her hand for a few seconds and she smiled. I'm all right. McGee picked up the headphones. There were 15 separate channels, including the actual pilot to base frequency, which he found very interesting. The technicians were manually running down the checklist and verifying with the computers. He listened to Frank Winder talking to the pilot named Mesmer. Hundreds of systems were passing the test right down the line. Everything was proceeding smoothly. McGee looked up at the clock in front of the room, just over the viewing screen. The time to launch was one hour and 15 minutes. It was just a matter of waiting. He reached out again, holding Annie's hand securely. She opened her eyes briefly, but the tension showed in her face. It was the inescapable sense of doom that she just couldn't understand. Computer checks verified everyone was on board before the appointed time. It was essential, no matter how restless the passengers became, that they remain in their seats. Once the ship had escaped Earth orbit, they would be allowed to roam the rear section. The recreation and relaxation rooms would be open, and most importantly, drinks would be served to one and all. The situation in the VIP section was quite different. A general party atmosphere prevailed. They sat all over, wherever they chose, telling each other just how they had secured their seat in this most prestigious area. The bar had been opened since the first VIPs arrived. Senator Rothstein, standing in front of the leather-lined bar, was speaking in his usual eloquent style, and had already attracted over 10 people. The highest I've ever been off the ground is in my Washington office, he joked. Capitol Dome is a pretty high, Senator, laughed one of his colleagues from the House. Yeah, it's cold up there, said Rothstein, not taking it personally, especially in the wintertime. I understand there's a nice little place down the street, very cozy. My wife's already been out to take a look at it. 1600 uh, Pennsylvania, nice wrought iron fence around it. Is this an official announcement? Asked one of the net asked one of the network. Yes, Miss Hilla, he laughed. I'm afraid you have a real scoop. Sure, said another newsman. We have no idea that you may say you're thinking of Well it's not official, said the news lady. Say, Senator, aside from this political nonsense, can we have your true feelings about the launch? Rothstein smiled. Chuck, I can only say what I said before. My mind is totally open. I want to see their side of it. Not only do they have to convince us that they're laying out more money for space and that's important and worthwhile, they have to convince us that that money is more important than some of our vital concerns here on Earth. 
as a spokesman for the new welfareists, I might say they have their work cut out for them. You are president, said another man, and Rothstein smiled once again. If you were president, would you have allowed the agency to operate in virtual seclusion all these years? And what would you have done about all the accidents? I speak specifically about the lost colony ship. I haven't heard sufficient evidence about this particular incident, but I must say I agree with Mr. Barrett. This isn't an easy thing. Lives may be lost at any great move forward. Don't get me wrong, I think humanity should move into space. My concerns are with the present problems. This may not be the right time to go into space. I not only think this is the right time, said General Kellogg as he stepped up to them, we've already allowed too much time to pass by. Ah, General Kellogg, smiled the Senator. What a pleasure to see your smiling face. I'm smiling, Senator. It's because this agency is going to show everyone that going into space right now is imperative. Let me ask you a question. I'll be my guest. I'm surprised you wouldn't want to join the ranks of the press. How do you react to the launching of the DOS monitoring system and the construction of stations along the freighter routes? They have about as much right as we do to be up there, counted the Senator. Oh, is that right? about the Russian and Chinese network of spy systems, which I might add, has expanded five-fold since your committee's decision to cut our early tracking systems. Don't you think this constitutes a clear and present danger to our own country? No, no I don't, said Rothstein flatly as more people gathered around the two men. Everyone has to learn to live together, whether it's in outer space or here on Earth. Oh, where'd you learn that, Senator? asked Kellogg as his face grew red. Do you abide by such a credo in your political life? One big happy family, right? Well, I know for one that you don't. You go for the jugular, jockey for position, the best position, and that's exactly what's happening in outer space. If we aren't out in the forefront, no matter how right we proclaim ourselves to be, we'll fall by the wayside. General, without incurring your wrath, let me just say, your view of international events is quite simple and quite dangerous. If you had your way, we'd be involved in a space war right now, knocking apart everyone else's space installations. That may not be a bad idea, he said bluntly. You and your bleeding-hearted buddies down in Washington it will be giving money away to every loser and bum in the country. Barrett was up front with the pilots, but he could hear Kellogg's voice clear down front. He quickly dropped his clipboard and ran down the spiral staircase. Taking one look ahead at the heated confrontation, he dashed down the main aisle. Kellogg and Rothstein were almost at blows. You're the most ignorant son of a bitch in Washington, shouted the general. You know, general, leaders of the military come and go. Remember that. So do little weasels like... All right, all right, if you please. Senator, we don't need a scene like this. Come on, cried Barrett. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Barrett. This is your flight, said the Senator. He nervously ran his hand along the side of his head. I uh, shouldn't let things like this get to me. I apologize. Well, that's encouraging. Matt, growled Barrett. He took the general by the arm and brought him down to the observation deck. Matt, what the hell are you trying to do? We're supposed to be showing these people the benefits of space. How can we do that when you're ready to smash the most powerful man in the Senate? You listen to me, Barrett. No one tells me what I can and cannot do. I've been in this program for over 30 years, you little son of a bitch, and I conduct myself the way the situation demands it. And that's a decision I will make. 
Not a little mealy-mouthed PR man like you, he said as he broke Barrett's grip and walked down the deck. The shorter man's face was red with embarrassment as he seemed genuinely frightened by the general's unruly demeanor. He closed his eyes and reached for his cigarettes, but they were not allowed aboard ship. Ah, Mr. Barrett, said a voice to the rear. One of the invited professors was looking down deck at Dr. Savard. He didn't tell us we'd have the company of Dr. Victor Savard on this flight. A last-minute change, he said to the man. I'm sure the doctor will be of invaluable assistance to you as well as everyone on board, he said perfunctorily as he kept his eye on Kellogg. The general moved through the metal hatchway into the rear sections. Mr. Barrett, called one of his aides. Director started is on the screen up front. Oh, good, oh, good. Excuse us, he said to the professor as he climbed the deck stairs. He knew Rothstein and his group were watching him. He moved down front, descending the metal staircase to the pilot's cabin. He could already see started in the control room talking to Frank Winder on the forward screen. Walter, here I am. Started turned, raising his brows. Well, Peter, are you ready for the uh, pre-flight announcement? Oh, the old pep talk, eh? That's right. Remember, it's vital, as we discussed this morning, that these people be put at ease. Going into space for the first time can be very traumatic. Yeah, well, so can other things on board. What do you mean? Kellogg, he said, and Stoddard's face became grim. Now Oh, nothing. He almost knocked down Senator Rothstein, that's all. Oh, God. Exploded Stoddard as he stood. What is that man trying to do? Can't he just control himself for one minute? Apparently not, Walter. I was able to break up the argument, and Kellogg went up to the rear section. Have him page, Peter. I will not have Matt Kellogg screw up months of planning. I'll let him know, Walter. Let's just get this thing off the ground. Agreed. Hanson started reluctantly. Keep me posted if anything else happens. I will. Good luck, Peter. I'll need it on all counts, he smiled. And tell my wife, tell my wife I love her and we'll see her and the kids soon. I will tell her, said started as his image faded out. McGee was restless. He tapped his finger on the sidearm of the seats seared out at the hangar and hotel beyond. As launch time grew closer, all the ramifications were converging into a single focal point. Although he did not share the same anxiety as Andy, he was understandably nervous. In fact, he was worried about her. She just sat motionless, headphones over her ears and eyes closed. May I have your attention, please? Said Barrett over the front screen. Andy opened her eyes and took off the headphones as she stretched and returned the smile. My name is Pete Barrett. I am the press liaison for the Space Agency. I would like to welcome you all to this historic mission. I'm sure it will be an, an unforgettable experience for everyone on board. I'll second that, said Annie. Today we are taking a great step forward. That step is into space. Many of you are skeptical of what's going on up in the wild blue yonder. Space is a wondrous adventure, ladies and gentlemen. Space can offer us so much hope. If we just grasp for the heavens in the proper manner. But in the end, only you and all of you will have to formulate your own feelings about what will happen in the next 10 days. All decisions rest with you, not with the space agency. We need diverse opinions before we can come to the best conclusions, he said as he paused. The meeting with Savard crossed his mind. How he had said just the opposite. How they should trust one man's judgment. It took him a few seconds to regain his concentration. So, that is why I brought you on this flight. 
the first passenger flight of the short range transport. I only ask you to trust our motives and, and let objectivity be your guide through the next 10 days. Now, before I conclude, he said as he swung the camera, let me introduce the pilot on this mission, he said. A middle-aged, Latin-looking man, smiling broadly, came over the screen. Colonel Don Mesmer. Colonel Mesmer has been piloting the short-range transport for over seven years. He was a test pilot for the original project. Total of 400 missions into space. Next, our co-pilot, Commander Richard Williams, and Mission Specialist Commander David Patterson. Commanders Williams and Patterson are both transport pilots. Also along for the ride, so to speak, Senator Alvin Rothstein of New York. Rothstein, having been notified by the control room, walked into camera rings. They zoomed in on his face as he spoke. Thank you, Mr. Barrett. Ladies and gentlemen, he said as he assumed his public stance. I think we owe the agency a debt of gratitude today. Despite our political beliefs, Mr. Barrett has told us we, we must take the objective view. And so, for the next few hours, I know this American is going to sit back and behold the extraordinary events that are about to take place as we are brought high above Earth and beyond. I feel as you all do, privileged to be a human being on a day like today. No, oh, that's a shovelful, said Kellogg under his breath in the passenger section. What did you say, General? asked one of the attendants. Nothing, nothing at all, he said as he turned from the viewing screen and moved up front. Thank you, Senator, said Barrett. He looked over to the countdown clock. I see from the clock that we are 20 minutes away from liftoff. And if your stomach has the perennial butterflies, please understand, we all get this feeling. It's, it's perfectly normal. Before I take my seat, I would like to introduce a last-minute addition to our flight today, world-renowned Dr. Victor Savard, who has come down from Research Station 19 to join us on this historic flight. Dr. Savard. Thank you, Mr. Barrett, he said in another location in back of Barrett. Ladies and gentlemen on board and those listening around the world, I would like you all to regard this flight not as a flight conceived by the United States, but a flight executed by human beings. Yes, I would rather say human beings are venturing into space. And as human beings, our science has progressed masterfully over the past decades. We have constructed a spacecraft that is truly remarkable. We shouldn't fear this opportunity, rather we should use it to our advantage, because as the human race forges ahead, it will be because of our human freedom and understanding, and ability to use science and trust in science, realizing that science indeed has an answer to our problems. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doctor, said Barrett as he looked into the camera. Now we have a full 15 minutes before launch. I would ask you to sit back, relax, and enjoy what will happen. This is, although it may not seem like it, a routine flight. A flight made several times a day by our transports. We will leave the spaceport just like any other conventional aircraft, achieving Earth orbit in 20 minutes. We will go around the Earth for two full orbits and then we'll burn the main engines, bringing us out of orbit to our first stop, the General Electric Factory Complex, six hours from now. So enjoy the flight, smiled Barrett as his image dissolved. Started was on the smaller cabin screen. Very good, Peter, very good, he said in a better frame of mind as the launch approached. Let's just hope it all goes well, Walter, if you know what I mean. Ellen. Don't give other matters a second thought. This will be a historic day for everyone. I think I'll have a good shot of bourbon before they light this candle, said Barrett. Have one for me, 
said started. Good luck, Peter. Barry pretended to salute the director as he left the screen. Patterson pulled the camera around and resumed communication with Winder in the control room. The overhead clock in all sections of the SRT heightened the already frazzled feeling. Strapped into their seats, the passengers were about to leave the planet, most for the first time. And as the seconds ticked away, the pilots were rechecking all the systems with the computers in the control room. The prodigious engines below the rear sections had reached a final charging level and were humming smoothly. Everything was set. The world watched as the mighty craft turned ever so slowly and rolled across the concrete toward the final ascent runway. Thousands watched along the highways and beaches, their telescopes and binoculars trained on the transport as it turned onto the ascent runway alongside of the wildlife preserve area. System uh, check 100%, said Don Mesmer with a smile, brought the giant craft around to its proper alignment on the runway. Everyone inside the transport was tense, yet Mesmer had made this maneuver so often in the flight into space many times. All systems are normal. Are you sure, Colonel? Said the flight communicator. I don't remember if we filled the tank. Well, if we run out of gas, Doug, Dad will take away the keys. I overheard that. Said the confidence started. Good luck, Don. Piece of cake, Walter, piece of cake. Smiled Mesmer. Internal pressure is nominal, said Williams, the co-pilot. Good, runway three alignment is set, Kennedy, stated Mesmer. Roger, answered the communicator. Internal LEC, repeat, internal liftoff, engine charge sequence commencing now, mark, engine charge. Roger, engine charge. Runaway status, SRT 457, you have runway clearance, said a man in front of a multi-systems console. Begin runway. Roll in 10 seconds. Mark 10 seconds. Mesmer looked out the cabin window to his right. He could see the large press contingent. To the left was the hang of the hotel and the administration building. He smiled slightly as he saw a flock of birds heading out over the wildlife area toward the ocean. Then he raised his brows, looking down at his controls and moving the throttle forward. Runway roll commencing. He told them and the mighty ship rolled down the concrete keeping within the computer-generated lines. Orientation right on the mark, Don. Roger base, internal pressures at 36 and climbing right on the button. Copy, Don, point three seven. Andy seemed more relaxed as the transport moved slowly down the runway. McGee was the one with the butterflies. His plan revolved in his mind time and time again. He glanced out the window toward the old vehicle assembly building and then looked back up into the deep blue sky. It appeared just like any sky at any time, but so much lie in store for him up there, the red metal and the security for the rest of their lives. He took a deep breath and gazed back at the solid ground. The SRT was gaining speed now, moving about 200 miles an hour. The countdown clock read less than a minute. There would be no turning back now. We are approaching 30 seconds, Winder told Mesmer and started to listen closely. The director moved away from the console into the outside window. He raised his binoculars, bringing the transport into view. But it was moving so rapidly he could not keep it in sight. Quickly, he walked back to the console to look at the clear electronic image. Winder, his face tense with apprehension, looked up at him. He was still having doubts as to whether they should have even launched. Let's just hope it all goes smoothly. Let's just hope it all goes smoothly. Let's just hope it all goes smoothly, Frank. Sid started. Amen to that, Walter. 
said Winder, not looking at him and keeping his eyes transfixed on the screen. Pressure rating is 7-2, Don. Said the flight communicator. Confirm. Echoed Nesmith's voice around the control room. The spacecraft was speeding down the runway. I have a go for launch, Winder said to him. The heat and steam were beginning to form around the large spherical engine cones, a sure sign that the enormous power was about to be released. The ship moved forward ready for liftoff. Mark, we have 15 seconds, ground speed 482 miles an hour. IEP 96, looking good boys, reaching the 10 second mark. fire jets, each extending back at least a quarter of a mile, roared from the transport. Billowing, a cocoon of billowing white smoke surrounded the jets, leaving a long trail over the runway. All systems were synchronized and the craft zoomed forward like a fast race car. It was airborne in seconds, its nose tilting upward at a reduced angle as it gained lift. With this extraordinary amount of power, things happened rapidly. The nose moved up in the spacecraft, followed by orange fire jets and a thick trail of gushing gray smoke shot upward into the sky. McGee kept his eyes riveted on the outside window. Annie clamped her eyes tightly as she held McGee's hand. McGee could see the base below as they arched upward and the crowds along the highways as they looked up at the fireball in the sky and fought the deafening noise. The vibrations literally shook them to their bones. In a strange way, the sound linked everyone together in this great venture to the stars. They were crying and cheering. Even the press, so very hostile in the past, were overcome by the emotion of the hour, whether watching on the monitors or looking skyward at the curving trail of smoke. Even the staunchest critics were captivated by a fervent respect. Making its final maneuver as it circled, the transport, only about 4,000 feet up, seemed to hang over the base like a giant dirigible. Mesmer was awaiting the proper alignment before the main engine thrust. People had been warned to cover their ears when the word was given. Gravity stabilizers are on, said the pilot. Approaching the window, Don, said Winder, tensely studying the screen. Computer thrust in five, four, three, two. One, computer thrust. The consternation of some on the ground. It appeared as though the transport had actually exploded. Flames rounded out like a miniature nuclear blast, and with the stabilizers in place, the SRT Flight 457 instantaneously ascended at a steep angle into the heavens. McGee's mouth just hung open, like everyone else who was not afraid to look out the windows. Just like anyone else who was not afraid to look out the windows. The massive hangar, the miles of runway and roads, in fact, the whole base and surrounding wilderness moved away like a movie on fast speed. The ocean was below them in seconds, and the advanced computers tracked the ship. Scattered clouds were becoming mere dabs over the deep blue sea. Looking good, Don, looking good. Bermuda visual looks damn good. 
Roger Kennedy, velocity approaching 4,000, stabilizes holding firm, said Mesmer as he looked forward. He always found, no matter how many times he went into space, the beginning of the Earth's curvature, brilliant, aqua white against the darkening sky, was breathtaking. Mesmer always found, no matter how many times he went into space, the beginning of the Earth's curvature, a brilliant aqua white against the darkening sky, to be breathtaking. That's why he hated the deep space missions. Too much of the same, stars and blackness, and then more stars and blackness. Night is upon us, gentlemen, he said to his co-pilot and mission specialist. Routine, very routine. I wonder how routine the passengers think it is, <laughs> laughed Patterson. Andy, you really should look out here. You can see the whole damned Atlantic Ocean, shouted McGee. Look, I see Bermuda. She opened one eye, then the other, slowly looking to her left. The ocean was 80 or so miles down below them. She turned and looked right at McGee. We aren't on the ground, McGee? I would say uh, that would be a fairly accurate estimate, sunshine. Although the gravity stabilizers cut the accelerating forces to virtually nothing, she could still sense the movement. And as the brown deserts and the coast of Africa came up over the edge of the ocean, McGee could no longer hold her attention. She had become addicted to what was happening. We have Canary Island pickup. Canary pickup. Do you read visual? Roger 457. We have a clear picture. Very good, very good, said Mesmer confidently. Frank. Orbital insertion is coming up. Orbital insertion in 17 seconds, Don. You look good. Roger, pressure shutdown is commencing, said Mesmer as he watched the readout. He flipped a switch and then came over the viewers around the ship. From the VIPs up front to the passengers in the way back, they listened to the colonel speak. I would like to advise everyone we have orbital insertion. Now, of course, technically we are in a weightless condition, however, Units similar to gravity stabilizing devices have automatically and gradually been working for the past few minutes, so we all have our own artificial weight. We are approaching the coast of Africa. We'll be able to view the Canary Islands and the coast of Senegal, Guinea, and the allied countries of the Dominion States. We'll be in orbit for approximately three hours, adjusting and compensating systems before we move into space. The view is spectacular. I'm sure it will not be a boring three hours. Join us again next week for another adventurous episode of the Ramdamas Kingdom, Who Is He Who Commands the Masses? Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.